Welcome to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a podcast from the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal. We're talking with some of the speakers coming to the 2022 NRBS conference, where the focus is stress, anxiety, and burnout. Today, our guide to the healthy brain and happy body is Jenna Prada. Jenna is an educational advocate working with families and schools to bring the best educational experience to children with diverse learning styles. I talked with Jenna about the stress families are feeling, especially after more than two years of a pandemic, and the reasons a family might want to work with an educational advocate. Yeah, I feel like there's lots of reasons there. Um, And it's also worth saying sort of there's different types of advocates depending on which need applies. Um, So I think a lot of families think of advocacy in the context of, you know, legal rights and kind of difficult relationships with schools. That's one reason, right? If you understand the rights that your child has and the school is being difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, In my experience, that's really not most of the time. Most of the time what happens is everyone's doing their best to support a child, right? But the different players sort of have different pieces of information and aren't really able to communicate well with each other, right? So, you know, for instance, families don't know what words need to be used in order to sort of trigger some of the systems that schools have in place, absolutely. Um, Special educators are at a shortage in this country right now. And so that just means they are stretched very thin and might not be able to read everything that comes through, Um, not because they're bad people, just because when you have a caseload of 100 kids, life is hard. And so being able to sort of highlight for those special educators, the real needs of the children can be really important and parents don't know what to highlight. Um, And then the other thing that I see that's relevant certainly to the members of NRBS is that depending on what kinds of evaluations are done or right, how a report is written, there needs to be a little bit of the translation from the psychology field to the education field, right? There are two separate vocabularies that get used. Yeah, you, you'd given a, a really nice webinar, uh, which is available at nrbs.org, about doing that translation, particularly focused on uh, EEG and brain activity and bringing that into the school meetings. Um, and that was really interesting to me, both as a professional, but also as a parent of a teenager who is sort of a diverse learner. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, about um, how do you bring the EEG into these meetings uh, and how do you get buy-in, particularly from the, the educators? There's a diverse group of teachers that you might be working with, just as you all, I'm sure, see kind of parents where you start to explain EEG and there are some parents who are like, oh, yeah. And totally get it. And there's some parents that are either super confused or like a little skeptical. So that same gamut of human exists within the schools. But in terms of creating buy-in, I think one of the things is very few people know about EEG data or understand it. And so you need to kind of point out the things that make clear where a child is struggling, right? So I have had a lot of success with pointing out kind of standard deviations of difference, right? And so while someone might not understand an active area of the brain and what that's managing, saying like, 
this child has 13 standard deviations from the norm. Like, wow, that's a big data point and people understand that. And then also taking the time to kind of highlight, like we see an excess of activity or slow activity in this area. And here's what that area does. Here's how that might manifest itself in your classroom. I can work with providers and some providers are able to say like, that might look like them seeming to drift off during class. That mm -hmm. might look like them, you know, not finishing their tasks, right? Or being very sensitive to sound or whatever the things are. And when you're able to talk about those manifestations, teachers are like, oh yeah, I see that. Um, and now there's an understanding of how the brain is connected to the behavior. And you can talk with them also about some of the interventions that might be most appropriate given brain activity. Yeah, we definitely do that, right? And I think that's another place where advocates are helpful because lots of times I've seen parents ask for things that just aren't practical within a school setting. Um, one example is I recently had a parent ask like if they could put a bubble machine in the classroom. And I was like, absolutely not. No one will ever allow that, mm -hmm. right? But it's very helpful <laughs> to their child. And so then we have to talk about like, what are alternatives to the things that you can do at home? You know, and I know there's lots of talk in, in this community about like, teaching children, for instance, HRV breathing, but saying HRV breathing means very little in mm -hmm. the education community. Um, and so instead, if parents can kind of identify a prompt to give a child so that they can activate things that are helpful to them, we can work with the school for the school to use a similar prompt. So you may work with both the parent and the teacher uh, in, in getting their child to do s slow breathing, for example. Exactly. Something like that. Okay. Yeah. So, so what is it like to try to bring all of these parties together and play nicely together so that the, the, they all have the same goal, as you, as you were saying, when they all come from different perspectives and they all have different resources and different demands on their own time? What do you do to try to get everybody to work well together? Hopefully what I do is get in there early before anyone's upset. When that doesn't occur, I think there's, you know, usually I start with a conversation with the parents because I want to understand what they know about their children. In education, we all know that parents know their kids best, um, which is why I want to start there. And that, that's an opportunity for me to talk with parents about what are reasonable expectations of the school, what are the things that the school can and cannot do, because sometimes the anger or the misunderstandings are really exactly that, right? They're misunderstandings about the role of the school or the funding that the school has or doesn't have. Um, and so clearing that up can be helpful. I think a lot of it too is just helping people, I mean, communicate like you do in any situation where people are upset. And that's where the translation comes in for the school, right? Because when schools get upset with parents, right? It's a feeling of the parents asking for things that are unreasonable. And that may or may not be true, but using language that the schools understand can help alleviate that feeling because it's just usually a miscommunication. Now, again, I opened up saying sometimes you want an advocate because things really are difficult, right? Um, I'm working with someone right now. We wrote an email together. It was very nicely worded. It started with, all pra with praise for all the things that the school's doing that are really, really helpful. And also then I asked, we asked some really direct questions about how a school determined 
that the student's ADHD wasn't having a significant impact on their learning. What testing did you do? They refused to put an answer in writing. And that was not my favorite, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was like an easy question. So when that happens, you know, that's when you're going to an advocate who's more focused on the legal side or perhaps a lawyer. But usually it's just about working together like you do in any situation. So the, um, the theme of this year's conference is uh, coping with stress. And I imagine that's something you run into a lot. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the sort of relation, and I imagine it's a two-way relation, between uh, stress in the family and the kid and the kid's educational experience. How do those kind of play out? Yeah, I think, well, yes, they play out, you're right, kind of in both directions. Some of what occurs, right, is that schools have a lot of pressures on them to meet state standards and national standards and standardized testing requirements. And so they, their hands are tied a little bit in terms of what communications they're required to send home. Um, and a lot of those can trigger stress in families. Uh, one really super common example is in the early learning stages of how to read, we now require that students by the end of kindergarten read at a level that I was expected to read by the end of second grade. Sometimes that's good for the kid and sometimes it's not developmentally appropriate. And I've seen, you know, the schools, are, the schools aren't picking to do that. Most teachers I talk to agree that it doesn't make sense. That stress comes to the parents. Then we've got the parents sitting with the kid and being, you know, drilling sight words, kids are crying. Um, and so in those cases, it's really about taking a moment to help the parents understand the many facets that are playing into that communication and talk about what's developmentally appropriate. If they're sounding out at all, we're okay. They're gonna be a reader by second grade. Deep breaths for all, right? The goal here is that like kids don't hate school. So if we're causing stress, that's not gonna be helpful. There are of course times where it goes the other way right in terms of difficult home situations that manifest in difficult behaviors in the school setting right i think we've all heard the idea that children tend to act out where they feel safest and most comfortable if school is a safe space that can lead to difficult behaviors um, if parents have really high expectations that can lead to difficult behaviors right and then we can layer on top of that kind of just life, right? I think we all see uh, the past two years were really hard for all of us. The expectations in terms of activities and grades that are now on kids in high school have really ratcheted up. Um, and so even high performing neurotypical kids kind of have these stressful overbooked lives. And then we could layer on top of that kind of being not neurotypical. And schools are really good, for instance, about giving extended time on a test, right? But if we don't take the time to advocate for, what does that mean for homework, for instance, right? If we need a time and a half to finish a set of questions, we probably need time and a half to do the math worksheet. But how do we get that? And that can lead to exhaustion, right? So, I mean, you asked about stress in education. Unfortunately, there's a thousand places that can come from. Yes, and I, and I certainly noticed in the last couple of years, my own teenage uh, patients are the, their stress has just gotten extremely high, and it, it's obviously interfering with their 
ability to learn or or just to do do all their developmental uh, demands. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about uh, these last two years, sort of the, the pandemic and the restrictions? I, I know there's been a huge variation in how schools have responded and continue to respond. Um, but what are you seeing uh, for the families you're working with and the schools you're working with? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest themes of the past couple of years is that kids' executive functioning really suffered. When we were doing remote school, there was a lot less structure to the day, right? The schools had fewer opportunities to sort of look at someone's notes, for instance, right? Or redirect attention, uh, or even talk about what do you study for this test? Um, teachers felt, I think, correctly that they needed to not ask too much of students who were dealing with all of the psychological stresses of being isolated and being worried about their health. And so expectations kind of dipped a bit in terms of performance on assessments. And so I've seen kids that just don't know how to study even a little bit. Kids in elementary school didn't get a lot of the social training in terms of like how to be in a classroom. And so that's the area. I mean, certainly also content gaps, <laughs> but it's hard to fill content gaps without the executive functioning skills to engage with the work. And so a lot of that's what I'm spending time talking with families about, right? So it's a, it's accommodations like have someone sit with you in the resource room and make a plan for your week, provide students with a list of upcoming assignments, kind of doing those base layers so that we can then layer the content on top of it. So it's it's a lot of executive function and psychosocial functioning, uh, yeah. even more than content, it sounds like. Well, it's sort of like you can't even get to content, mm -hmm. right, if you can't engage with the material in an effective manner. So as, as we at least apparently are moving out of the pandemic, what, what do you see for, you know, your, your profession? What's going to happen in the next year or two? Who knows? Uh, right? <laughs> good I answer, think, good answer. You know, over the past year, schools have put almost across the board additional funding into what is known in education as um, social emotional learning. SEL is a thing you'll hear a lot about. Um, there's a number of districts that have hired social emotional learning coordinators. And that's new and exciting and optimistically is an open door to be, begin to bring in some of the, the kind of tools that you all work with in NRBS, right? Some of the more um, mindfulness tools, potentially bringing HRV training into buildings. Um, it's becoming more common to do like yoga in schools or even in elementary school to do like buddy breathing where you put a stuffed animal on your stomach and practice diaphragmatic breathing. So maybe there's room for some of that in terms of what we're advocating for. I think there's lots of questions in terms of what I've seen across districts. Some are ready to ratchet things back up and they're almost trying to go back to, I'm going to air quotes, normal. I don't know if you'll remember, but when the pandemic hit and that summer of 2020, where it was like, are we going to go to school in person at all? What's going on? There was a lot of talk of this is an opportunity to reimagine our priorities 
within mm -hmm. education, right? Like we shouldn't necessarily try to just do what we've always done. There's lots of ways that it's not effective, right? Like there are significant performance gaps across different subgroups within the population. Some schools are exploring um, more performance-based assessments over the past two years. That would be, in my opinion, wonderful because again, for kids who have different learning profiles, incorporating choice and non-standardized assessments is a really great way to allow for accommodations. You know, there's a lot more we can do to give loads of kids access, for instance, to a historical thesis paper than there is to a bubble in sheet. So that's the like the hope. And you know, maybe, maybe, maybe none of that happens and we just go back to normal and it all looks the same and it's explaining why kids need different things um, and working with teachers on what does it look like to differentiate. The other thing worth naming here, right, is that parents and society have lots of expectations of teachers regarding their ability to adjust their teaching depending on a student's learning needs and lots of great teachers can, but we're running into a teaching shortage, right? Loads of people left. We've got difficulty getting new people in. A standard teaching master's program includes one special ed course. That gives you some tools, but not loads. So, you know, in terms of what does my life look like in the years to come, I think like barring huge changes, probably kind of how it's looked for the mm -hmm. past several years. So this is almost an opportunity to, as you're saying, reimagine how we teach and educate our kids. And, and at least locally, it seems like there's a tension between that desire and the pressure to go back to the status quo, which I imagine is, is also what you're, you're talking about. So I, actually, I would guess you'd be very, very busy in the next couple of years in terms of what you're doing, if that's even possible to be more busy than you are now. I mean, I'd love to. I think the thing I would say is it's often parents who have students that have needs that the school's not immediately meeting that tend to want to learn how to advocate for their child. I would love to see just parents even of neurotypical children wanting to advocate for education that would be more engaging for their child, right? Like maybe they're fine now, but they could be thriving in a different way if we had lots of people speaking up, kind of pushing for, again, what I'm framing as an opportunity to, to shift. Do you have one piece of advice that you would give to parents or professionals who are struggling with kids who aren't learning as well as we'd hope they would? Different advice for parents mm -hmm. and for professionals, I think. Mm -hmm. I think for parents to think of their relationship with their school's teachers as exactly that, a relationship um, that ideally starts as soon as you get the parent's name in the fall, the teacher's name rather in the fall, right? So rather than waiting for your child to come home crying one day or the assignment to come home that you just really can't imagine they're going to be successful at doing. Reaching out first week of school, hi, I'm so-and-so's parent. Here are some things that they're really good at. I would love to support your work with them in any way that I can. Please let me know if you're noticing anything and kind of opening that conversation with a collaborative spirit 
is I would say my number one piece of advice, because if you can be consciously building a team to support your child and to understand your child as a learner, that's going to be the most effective way to get them the support that they want and need. Then professional advice. I think it's interesting. In my experience, most professionals sort of have a relationship with the child that is very separate from the school, right? So, you know, a psychologist writes a report and there's all these recommendations or even a talk therapist meets with the child and might say to the parent, hey, go ask for this. Um, but there's little interaction with the school. That makes sense. It's fine, right? That's not a critique. Um, but that's where this advice comes from, which is, I think, particularly in writing a report, know that if, if you turn in a 40-page report, it's going to be skimmed right? No one, except for maybe me, <laughs> is reading it word for word and having that knowledge as you write it. So maybe that means your report would really benefit from like a summary at the top with like our top three recommendations and a couple bullet points of data that, you know, you really want the people to get can be really helpful. Or maybe it's bolding things throughout so that people skim what you would hope they would skim. Also, I'll say for school's purposes, in order to trigger the implementation of a 504, uh, which is one document that supports the child and gives them different approaches to the information or an IEP, there needs to be a diagnosis. No diagnosis, no 504, no IEP, period, end. Well, actually, in some ways, your, your advice is the same. Build a relationship with your teachers and the schools. Uh, however you're going to do it, whether you're a professional or a parent. You've been listening to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a production of the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. Go to nrbs.org to find out more about the organization, including our trainings, monthly webinars, and yearly conference. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal, and our guide today to the healthy brain and happy body was Jenna Prada an advocate working to bring the best educational experience to children struggling in school. She founded The Learning Link, and you can find out more about her work at learninglinkedu.com and at the NRBS annual conference. Remember, you can join us virtually on October 21st and 22nd by registering with the code HAPPYLISTENER for a 25% discount at nrbs.org. Subscribe to this podcast by clicking the subscribe here link in the show notes or wherever you get your podcasts. We really want to hear from you. Be part of this ongoing conversation by contacting us with your thoughts, ideas, and questions at healthybrain at nrbs.org. Leave us reviews as well. It really helps podcasts like this one reach more listeners. Healthy Brain, Happy Body is produced and edited by me. The theme music is Catch It by Coma Media. Be sure to join us on our next episode as we continue to explore the keys to our well-being on Healthy Brain, Happy Body.